Part 6 here at On and 5. I'm Austin Thomas with Ethan Bonin and Anton Ryder. Hello. So many episodes. Six. Six full episodes. That's a lot. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That's not too bad. Mm-hmm. We're racking them up and they haven't even broken up yet. No. Could you could you imagine if we did like a two-part, three-part series on Jimi Hendrix, how much would have been left out? It'd be miserable. It would be, yeah. That would be, be a nasty. crime. Yeah, it'd be a gross crime against humanity. We'd probably here. get canceled. Mm. <laughs> I, I was so. going to call it a travesty again, but I learned my lesson. I don't, I don't know if that's right or not. I don't know. <laughs> a tragedy. It would be a tragedy, not a travesty. <laughs> okay, okay. Doesn't sound as good. But... <laughs> yes. Jimi Hendrix, part six. So at the end of our last episode, we once again had Jimi on a plane from London to the United States. This plane landed in New York City on January 30th, 1968 carrying Jimmy and the band along with Neville and Jerry, though Jerry's plan was to sit in the office of the newly formed Jeffrey and Chandler Inc., which would be the building that would help assist the band while they were in America, while also probably making it much easier for Mike and Chaz to grab more American bands if the opportunity arose. I think that's a safe bet. I'd call oh, yeah. it a fair bet. Yeah, as Austin said in the last episode, Jerry had been promoted to full tour manager, which meant that his job now was to plan the tours for the band, and his first task here was getting a real tour going of the United States. The more he comes up, the more it becomes increasingly clear where the true success story in all of this lies. Just a hard-working man. Just a hard-working English man. Yep. Strapping lad who had a van. It's incredible. Living the dream. Man with the van, am I right? Yep. <laughs> so when the band left the States the last time in August 1967, they only had one single out, and it wasn't doing well at all. So a tour was instead arranged in the UK. You know, as a kid, I, I think I did know that Jimmy was American, but I had no idea how important his UK presence was. I, I think if he hadn't ever went to the UK, we probably wouldn't ever cover him in a series, I think. That is a very safe bet. He would yeah. be just a, <laughs> a backup man through and through, maybe have some kind of success. But yes, maybe. it was definitely the UK atmosphere that helped yeah. him get to where he is right now and where he will end up. You can argue if he never met Chaz, it wouldn't have happened. That's true. Absolutely. And Linda, if he never met Linda. Yeah. Uh, How about it? It's all so sad. <laughs> <laughs> so shortly after they left, another single came out, which again didn't do great. But the album Are You Experienced was released days after they left and ended up on the top 10 and greatly helped to increase their popularity in the States. They had timed that one poorly by leaving the U.S. just before the U.S. release, but mm -hmm. we have the advantage of doing this 50 years later, and it just doesn't really matter in the long run, does it? No. <laughs> it really does seem to work out yeah. in the end for them somehow. It's fine. It yeah. And so with the release of their second album, Axis Bold as Love, released just two weeks before they landed, they decided that they should tour 
or this one properly. And landing an album or even a single in the top 10 in the UK is impressive, especially during this time with all the huge bands that were around. But to do the same in the States was incredible. It's kind of like winning the British Academy Film Award and then winning an Oscar, I would assume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's a good analogy Very there, good. AJ Tommy. <laughs> One's cool, the other's really cool. <laughs> Very impressive, yeah. Jimmy landed at number five and number three on the charts, respectively, in the UK and in the United States. After the Monterey Pop Festival and one incredibly successful album, with the second climbing the charts, the States were ready to fully experience Jimi Hendrix. Tony, I got you something. What do you got for me, big guy? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Really good joke, Dad. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Austin held up. This is an audio-only format. Austin held up a picture that said, you're a fine father. Thank you. These are the jokes you get if you subscribe to our Patreon. Thanks, God. (laughs) That's true. Five bucks a month will get you (laughs) all that great content. Uh, I'm just glad you appreciated it. (laughs) So just two days after flying to the United States, the Jimi Hendrix Experience began their second official tour of North America, but officially headlining every show for the first time for every one of their 64 shows over the next two months. And as before, it was often two shows a night with supporting acts like Albert King, John Mayall's Blues Breakers, Soft Machine, Janis Joplin's band Big Brother and the Holding Machine, Eric Burden and the Animals, John Hammond Jr., and many more. How far out are we from the Blues Breakers transitioning to Fleetwood Mac at this point? Oh, we're thick into Fleetwood Mac. By this point, Fleetwood Mac has fully formed in their first iteration of the band, consisting of John and Mick, as well as Peter Green and Jeremy Spencer. And actually, at this point, they're about three weeks out from releasing their debut self titled album jeremy Spencer. spencer that's cuckoo banana pants right? yeah that's cuckoo children god boy yeah pants. okay yeah. 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 yeah yeah the blues breakers just carried on after mick and john and peter left and actually are still around today oh the webs we weave man mm. late 60s baby what a perfect time time it's yeah an explosion of music and actually to weave one more web Please. jimmy actually jammed with fleetwood mac near the end of 1968 so how about that I actually did not know that. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Very incredible. (laughs) So on this tour, the Jimi Hendrix experience would have bands come in and play for a couple days and then drop out, and then other bands would hop on and so on. And having acts like John Mayall's Blues Breakers and even Albert King was an interesting choice, because while Jimi was blues in a sense, he was more in line with the successor to blues, rock, and with Axis showing signs of leaning even into psychedelic rock. The audiences for Jimi were almost entirely white, with not a lot of black people appreciating his music, instead listening to more blues, jazz, soul, and pop. Man, it does seem like a fairly reoccurring theme in like music writers. Black people pioneer a genre, and then white people commandeer it. Oh, buddy. The United <laughs> States at this time had the audacity to call Jimmy the Black Elvis. Uh, come on. Where'd Elvis come from? <laughs> come on. Give no. me a break. You ain't yeah. nothing about a hound dog. I remember that Elvis original. <laughs> Oh, very fun. It'd be shocking if it was surprising enough. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this will start to change as we near the end of the decade. It does change, but I really, I didn't know anything about his fan base before we started this. And mm-hmm. there's some serious contention that he experiences for having a majority of white fans. It gets 
kind of serious before it gets better. Yeah, it, can, mm. it gets pretty rough for him. And there was yeah. there was such a divide, in fact, that when Albert King, who had been performing for nearly 20 years at this point and was a pioneer in blues, played his set for the shows, he said that it was the first time that he had played for white audiences. But regardless, the shows really went pretty well for the most part, with Jimmy, Noel, and Mitch so being a completely cohesive group that could put on one hell of a show with all their fun antics, gimmicks, and killer licks. So friggin' cohesive, man, and it's such a bummer seeing the way that things go because we already dipped into it a little Mm -hmm. in Jimmy phasing these guys out in the last episode, but they're so much more important to the experience than you think because it's going to get a lot less cohesive. (laughs) Yeah, I truthfully, before we started covering this, I had no idea that the Jimi Hendrix experience was a band Mm. and because I always thought Jimi Hendrix was the band, what he becomes later. I was in the same boat, yeah. And so, yeah. Thought the guys on the album were just guys. Guys, yeah. And Uh to see this happening and to see these these guys who helped him build who he is, it's really pretty sad. Sad. Yep. Mm -hmm. What happens? But straight out of the gate, Jimmy was having trouble with his equipment as Fender had given him and the band amps to use for the tour, as at least Jimmy already primarily used the Stratocaster. So using the amps were the natural progression. Hey, if it's free, you got to take all you can get. Absolutely, buddy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the amps weren't loud enough for Jimmy's liking. And during a show in California, Jimmy got frustrated with the equipment and put on a half-hearted show, not singing, barely playing, and even leaving the stage early. Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. I wasn't I wasn't ready for a Brady Bunch reference. Yeah, I didn't. I thought, I thought you were going to do a cheer. Like, yeah, Marshall, just, just... Marshall. Come on, oh, you guys. Wow. Oh, no. You keep oh. us on our toes. That's what I love. Thank you. Yeah, I'm talking about. Good for you. <sighs> it's just sad Jimmy won't make it to see a JCM 800, Marshall. That's yeah, man. You won't get to see that PV. Of EVH, the 5150. 5150. Oh, oh, man. So sad. They didn't get to meet. <laughs> all, so all possible because of this man right here. I'm that's I'm gonna say it. He was he was the funnel yep. that that brought all this these other genres into the into existence. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll back that up. I'll drink to that. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Cheers. So another company, Sun Amps, quickly donated amps to the band as an attempt to attach their name with this guitarist, with a contract following close behind. It went less than stellar for everyone, though, as when Jimmy was testing the amp, he turned it all the way up, as he always did, to which the Sun engineers told him he couldn't do. They recalibrated the amp to better suit Jimmy, but all that they did was put a limiter on it. So when Jimmy turned the amp all the way up, he would only be turning it two-thirds of the way up. Yeah, they recalibrated the amp to better suit sun amplifiers. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We have trash. we got to dial it down. Yeah. <laughs> Un- unfortunately for them, Jimmy knew that something had been done, and when he figured it out, he ended his endorsement deal that he had signed with them. But he did use the amps until he was able to find an adequate replacement which naturally turned out to be his tried-and-true Marshall Super 100 that he had owned and used for the last two years. He just knew what he wanted, I think, because there's an interview with Buck Munger. Buck. Buck Munger. Buck Munger. Buck Munger. Munger. (laughs) (laughs) He was the the sun rep that got him the deal in the first place, and he said that when... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be able to do it. (laughs) He said that when they met... (laughs) 
all Jimmy wanted to talk about was the war because Buck was an ex-Marine. So I think it was like, yeah, we we want, at, at this point we need free gear, but it really is not the free gear we want. And that w- it's, it's also interesting to me because there's that like weird dichotomy with Jimmy where he's very anti-war and anti-confrontation, but there's yeah. also a lot of times where he says he like, believes the communist threat is real, the war is necessary, but he also says that mindset was forced on him in the military, which I'm sure was true. Yeah, yeah believe it or not, the military knows how to brainwash you. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that both of those things can be true simultaneously, mm-hmm. and I also believe that Bug Munker like, <laughs> was so insistent on on shoehorning his own military experience in with, oh, another, yeah. with another boot. He had, he had his whole portfolio in there yeah. i just kind of skimmed it down for yeah he was prior time. military simplify <laughs> oh thank you for your service <laughs> two tours and shut the fuck up <laughs> take your goddamn health insurance and tuition coverage you served during that 20 years of peacetime between vietnam and world war ii <laughs> oh, here come the letters uh, here hey, come buddy. all the letters don't and forget emails. about korea korea was it? no korea was in the 50s never mind yeah. cheers Suck. <laughs> so outside the outside the rotating cast of amps jimmy had another issue to contend with as on february 12th the band was scheduled to play in seattle and Jimmy would be back in his hometown for the first time in nearly seven years. And he hadn't really spoken to any of them since a phone call he had just after arriving in London in 1966. The one where his dad told him to send postcards because he wouldn't pay for the collect calls, you remember? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you remember that. Yeah, I did say in a past episode that he had been writing to his family through a lot of this, but I was wrong in that. He hadn't spoken to his family in nearly 18 months. And since he had left... Seattle had hosted the World's Fair and had built the Space Needle. The Floating Bridge, the Lake Washington Bridge, and Six Stadium were both constructed, and Jimmy came home to a new family when he discovered at the airport that Al had remarried a woman named Ayaku who had a seven-year-old daughter named Janie. Here we go. First little discrepancy oh, we've had God. in a minute on this series. <laughs> uh, so according to two of the sources I'm reading... He and Kathy did talk to Al again one more time. I'm not sure who footed the bill on that, but um, Al told him that he was getting married uh, and was going to adopt her daughter. And Jimmy hung up the phone and said they didn't understand how Al could adopt her when he couldn't take care of his own kids and they didn't speak till he got home. Uh, Very healthy family dynamic I see here. So Uh, everything seems to be fine. Good for him. Mm -hmm. Good for the whole thing. Yeah. You know what? You might be right. (laughs) That that might be right. I don't know. You never know. (laughs) But regardless of all that, he was very surprised by everything. But he took it in stride, and everyone, including Leon, greeted Jimmy happily and pridefully. There's videos of it in one of the documentaries I watched, and Al just looks so happy to see Jimmy in the terminal. (laughs) Does he? Very nice to look at. Yeah, he acted completely differently than he had in the past, being much less strict on Jimmy and even answering interview questions for the press while he got to know his new family and catch up with Leon. Aside from screaming on the front lawn for both Leon and Jimmy to get their asses in the house (laughs) as he took his belt off because they drank all his whiskey and he was gonna whoop them like they weren't in their 20s but nah. that was, that's just family fun the yeah that's just talked him out of that so all's well as well hey man that's just a typical thursday that's right Tip- oh, normal sorry, thursday sorry. night yeah I, yeah exactly 
no big deal. No big deal. Nothing, yeah. nothing different. They actually showed up on a Monday. Kind of fun fact. Uh, it's so, a day that ends in Y. <laughs> so the family ate and drank together before all going to the Seattle Center Arena for the show, where his whole family was in the front row for the show, watching their prodigal son on stage, where he played a much more subdued and less rambunctious show than he was known for, likely because he didn't want to show his true, raunchy, sexual, violent side to his new stepmother and stepsister. Mm -hmm. And even now, taking into consideration his father's opinion. Always respectful Jimmy when whiskey isn't involved, at least. And I gotta (laughs) hand it to him because the first thing Al told him when he got introduced to her was that he had to refer to her as mom, which he did not do. (sighs) Fuck her, you know? And (laughs) she was still nice about it. No, absolutely will not. <laughs> he was nice about it, though, mm-hmm. and even even when her whole family came with them, including the four other children that Al did not adopt, yeah. and they all stood in the front row with a huge sign that said, Welcome home, Jimmy. Love your sisters, Ugh. which gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like Hopefully it. they remembered the comma. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Love your sisters. <laughs> Yeah. So apparently Jimmy also dedicated Foxy Lady that night to his grandmother Nora who had attended the show as well. Oh, he loved his grandma. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that's wholesome. That's the grandma that lived in uh Vancouver, Vancouver, Washington. Vancouver. That he stayed with. Ah, not up in Canada, but not the Canada up one over North. in Washington, huh? Yep, that's the Washington okay. side Vancouver. Not a goddamn Canuck. <laughs> yep. God. Makes you wince, but it's it seems wrong. It's not wrong every time. Canuck. <laughs> I think it's the I think it's the harsh K starting and ending the word. Oh yeah, it feels it's like a, th- it feels like an R. It's a hard <laughs> consonant. Of, yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Al did seem to enjoy the show, though he often had to plug his ears from how loud it was, as Jimmy was notoriously loud. They were right by the speakers, too. And they were right by yeah, front row, remember. <laughs> and the next day before leaving town, he took a trip to his old high school, Andrew Garfield High, where he was meant to give a speech to the current students and accept a key to the city and his diploma, since he himself had never graduated from high school. Jimmy gave a short speech before realizing that the student population was almost entirely black and had basically no idea who he was. So he stopped and asked if anyone had any questions. So initially he was supposed to put on a show and play a few songs for him, but this was the day after he got home, so he and the entire team stayed up all night partying with his family. Badass. Yeah, that's fun. Showed up to the assembly, (laughs) still in his clothes from the previous night's show, which kids weren't exactly vibing with. Yeah. And he's hung over as shit. (laughs) And the crew was equally hung over and couldn't remember where they parked the equipment truck. (laughs) So (laughs) they had to reassess and decided it would just be a speech and Q&A, and it was a crap, just crapshoot all the way through. (laughs) You say the crew... The crew is just Neville. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. it's just Neville. Just like, everyone's like Neville, where's the truck? And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't fucking anything know, dude. from last no, night, I don't man. You know where I don't anything know. is. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so in, that's so insane to me that even like nobody knows who this rock star is that's exploding through the country. Like like our hometown Iowa Falls 
they still milk that we had a professional basketball player <laughs> yeah. in the league a decade ago. And they well they still milk. This is Seattle. It's a big city. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So they, he was in Seattle. He was. They in have. A, they have less. They have so much to be proud about that they don't care about everything. We're from a very small town where we have nothing to be proud of. So I we guess. have to hold on to that one thing. I don't know. I think even big cities, you still celebrate <laughs> the the successes. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know, man. I Maybe not. They got the needle. Maybe not. They got Maybe the not. needle now. <laughs> Who <laughs> cares about there now? All I know is that Iowa Falls loves Nick Collison yeah, too much. Still do too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, that's the you ride that wave as long as it's going. They'll ride oh, it for a, the next century. It'll be. Don't insane. forget, you forgot Bill Riley, man. He was the Iowa State guy. Ah, Bill Riley doesn't matter for anything except for the band shell. <laughs> he did. He did the talent show for the Iowa State Fair. Come on now. Give me goddamn break wow big deal give me a break That's famous it's funny that you didn't even mention that he also the talent show in iowa falls is also called the bill o'reilly talent show that's how little he matters in iowa falls. <laughs> yeah Check i didn't me. know who you were talking about until you said talent show nick collison okay. leagues above you might be, you're, you're right he's national actually in the nba nick collison doesn't have a statue <laughs> it's true bill has a statue <laughs> doesn't mean anything. So did Hitler. So after a dumb question, (laughs) so after a dumb question was asked and Jimmy gave a snarky answer, someone asked how he wrote his songs to which Jimmy responded, quote, right now I'm going to say goodbye to you and go out that door and get in my limousine and go to the airport. And when I go out that door, the assembly will be over and the bell will ring. And as I get in the limousine and I hear the bell ringing, I will probably write a song. Thank you very much. <laughs> the dumb question was, how long have you been gone from Garfield, which to me is innocent enough. But Jimmy replied, oh, about 2,000 years, which is a weird response in any scenario. He was gone. He's been out of high school for seven years, just so everyone knows. He's 25 at this point. So yeah. not even that long. Yeah. Not even that long. And no one knows who he is. Not 2,000 years. Ma- not 2,000 years. That's true. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. No, he's time traveled. It's all the acid. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird. It's a weird. <laughs> yeah. But that's Jimmy for you. That's just Jimmy being Jimmy. He was also terrified, apparently. Oh, yeah. like, this is the most shaken up he's ever been. Kids are scary, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, public speaking's tough, yep. even for a performer. Yep. And so with that, he walked straight out of the building, not saying goodbye to anyone and not getting his diploma or the keys to the city. Pow Day, who planned the whole thing, said that no one ever told Jimmy he was getting a key to the city. That was just something Jimmy got in his head, so do with that what you will. <laughs> and I'll take the check. <laughs> are you sure there's not a check? Oh. <laughs> That's the Grinch. We're getting saying, on up to Christmas that? season, baby. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow, it's, it's not even Halloween yet. No, it's Halloween when they're listening to this. <sighs> That's true. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's November. Yeah, it's coming out in November. It's coming out on November 3rd. It's coming out election day. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> Checkmate, everyone. Get yeah, get to the polls. Don't forget about... I actually looked it up, and the reason that I know that he got there on a Monday is because I looked up because I read... In, in my book, Electric Gypsy, that the reason that he didn't get the key to the city was because the uh, the office, City Hall, was closed on the day because it was Lincoln's birthday. Uh, but that's not true because Lincoln's birthday is on the 12th and this happened on the 13th. And uh, oh. so it wouldn't. So you're probably right. It probably just never happened. Yeah. But I don't know, man. Never relate to yeah, him. Yeah. The, the interview, it was like, I don't know who said that to him. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure there's not a check? So so he got in his limousine. So Jimmy got in his limousine and rode to the airport to keep on touring, leaving his city and his family in the dust once again. I'm sure he was happy to get this homecoming event over with. It was Mm. overdue, yeah. And by this point, 
Even just two weeks into the tour, the band was taking off in the United States, with their shows being incredible night after night and selling out wherever they were playing, ranging from smaller clubs, which Jimmy preferred, to huge arena shows. For instance, the show in Seattle was in an arena that sat roughly 12,000 people, and as far as I could tell, it sold out. And this was the norm for the tour. At another show in Fort Worth, Texas, the band was paid their largest sum to date, $25,000 for two shows, with Chaz and Mike choosing a percentage of the gate rather than a flat fee, a risk that paid off handsomely for everyone. To us, that sounds so obvious, right? Like, it's Jimi Hendrix, take the gate percentage, that right. fish is going to fill up. But uh, this was at the tipping point for them, so it was kind of a gamble. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that people were coming. Also, for anyone wondering what the uh, inflation rate is, that's about 25 grand then, so 200K now. 200,000 for one night. Not bad. We're starting to get <sighs> on par with, with the bigger rock star, quote-unquote mm -hmm. bigger rock stars of later later times that we've covered. Oh, yeah. yep. But the road was already beginning to wear on them more than it had in the past, and especially back in the UK. The unfamiliar cities and climates of those cities they were going to, as well as the rigorous schedule of having to travel place to place in a country much, much larger than they were used to playing. Yeah. Having to play two 40 to 60 minute shows every night doing media appearances for interviews as well. And on top of all that, they had the pressure like they had never known before. As I said in the last episode, headlining these shows really screwed with the band for a long time, and they were still getting used to all the pressure being on them specifically. Every hill got a backside, know what I'm saying? No, I'm saying. Oh, I do know what you're saying. I do know what you're saying. <laughs> Chawfield. <laughs> so to deal with all this, the band, as all do, turned to drugs. Jimmy stuck to his acid and weed mostly, but Noel began to drink heavily and started popping amyl nitrate tabs regularly, which is an oil or a powder either kept in a jar or as it was used here in a glass capsule covered in cloth to protect the user's hands as they broke the capsule open to inhale the nitrite. I've never heard of this type of drug use, but it sounds about as classy as Huffy can paint. Oh, you've heard of it, buddy. That's so concerning that you've never heard of it. Yeah. Have I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't yeah, recall there's, them. There's one person specifically that we've covered that really loved the old nitrite. Really? Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's... Take a guess who it is. <laughs> oh, man. There it is. I heard it. <laughs> it's nice to have a big one if you got the choice. Yeah. I'll give oh. you three guesses in the first two. Don't care. <laughs> oh, God. Take me back. So, amyl nitrite is medically prescribed to treat cyanide poisoning, apparently, which I didn't know that that had an antidote, but apparently yeah, nope. it does. Uh, but it's also used to treat a heart condition called angina. Mangina. A angina. Who has, who has oh, a man mangina? Mangina. Angina, yeah. That's just funny to me because in biology class in 12th grade, uh, a girl in our class put that on her test for an for the answer to angina. They put mangina? Yeah, and Bolts called her out in front of That's so perfect because I was going to say this sounds, that's a joke from a high school rom, like, comedy. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like no. something you'd see Co in coming of age movie. It, that's what yeah, happened. Exactly, to me. yeah. It's something you'd see in the 65th Super Bad American Pie <laughs> yeah. sequel. That's where it came from, buddy. Perfect. Perfect. 
<laughs> you got it. Wow. So the amyl nitrite capsules, or poppers as they are more often known, gave the feelings of euphoria and warming of the face and body. And it also enhanced sex, with one specific effect being that it relaxed the vaginal and anal muscles, which made it very popular among gay men at this time. All right, you talked me into it. Now it just sounds fun and not Good. trash. Good anymore. for you. Yeah. Once it once yeah. sex is involved, then you're then you're in. Yeah, that's what cleans it up. Yeah. I get Relax it. Relax the the anus oh, a yeah. little bit. I yeah. yeah actually, just <laughs> yeah. It sounds very convenient for constipation. <laughs> I'm yeah, not swayed. <laughs> In fact, well, you'll get there, buddy. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> it was heavily abused by Liberace in his later years oh. to help him get hard. See, you you do know. There it is. And if you want to, if you want a couple more uh, practical examples of everyday use, watch Always Sunny, uh, Mac and Charlie Die Part One. <laughs> <laughs> what do they? What do they do with? It? I don't. When they're trying to blow up Dee's car, but they have, but Mac has a concussion because he drove the car into the wall, and so they buy poppers at a pawn shop to, to keep Mac focused. <laughs> oh, that is perfect. Uh, the funny thing is, is that those aren't meant to boost you up. Those are meant to relax you. So how about that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It just yeah. makes it more funny. Yeah, these poppers only have a, a functional effect of a couple minutes and they say that yeah, if you if you have them for angina your the, the effects only last a couple minutes and hopefully <laughs> your 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 event your heart event is over by the time it. yeah and, oh my and God. Not, you just take another popper so oh wow wild shit popping fun once you pop, you know. Pretty fun. Just can't yeah. stop. Yep. <laughs> but, but 20 years before Liberace was making it cool and 40 years, 60 uh, years well. before d- d- before <laughs> Mac and Charlie cool. were making it even cooler, yes. Noel was using it here in 1968. And Mitch was going even farther than Noel, with Neville Chesters calling him, quote, a walking chemist shop. He carried a small Pan Am airline bag filled with three types of medication to use and abuse. And before we get into these, I just need it to be known that these compartments were labeled. The, the yeah. whole thing is so goddamn laissez-faire. Oh, it's so it's so it's it's so organized and <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just frustrating how, but also how chaos. well thought out it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's organized chaos. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so first you had your leapers, which were your amphetamines, things like benzedrine, dexatrine, possibly some cocaine, and possibly even some sort of methamphetamine like methadrine or pervitin, nice. which was basically the precursor to crystal meth as we all know and love it today. <laughs> These things Jeez. were meant to wake the user up and give them a boost of energy while also improving their mood. Next, there were the creepers, which were the mandrakes and the quaaludes. Get the ludes! Get the fucking ludes! <laughs> I will not die so! Oh, the lute, man. Quaaludes. That is a... That's... When you talk about quaaludes, you know you're in a specific era. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're either a housewife or rich. <laughs> yeah. The creeper, yeah. The creepers were used to relax the body and calm the mind. And last but certainly not least were the sleepers. And these were the barbiturates. At this time, these were pills like Delmain, Doral, Halicon, Prosum, and Restoril. These were meant to knock the user out at the end of the night. Medicaid up. Medicate the middle, medicate mm. down. Regulate. You got it, buddy. Nope. You got it. Yeah, Mitch somehow never got caught with these drugs. 
and people said his Pan Am pill cabinet lived an easy life. Yeah, at one point in Vancouver, while they're touring with Air Apparent. I think you mean Ira Apparent? Yeah, Ira Apparent. Yeah, Ira Apparent. <laughs> well, their guitarist got caught with weed in his bag and got fucking deported, yeah. but Noel and his cute little pharmacy just moseyed on through. Yeah, make it cute. I almost guarantee he had like prescriptions for all of it. You know, Some of it. You might, yeah, you, you probably are not as far off. Yeah. It was said that I they be got surprised. a majority of their stuff from... Um, What's his name? The Beatles guy. Epstein? That they sing about. Oh, no. No. They, they had a doctor that, like, just yeah. filled their prescriptions. Yeah, would just fill them. a script for whatever you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's anyway. what they'd, they'd say. They said wherever they would go, they would just get a doctor to just fill yeah. out whatever pay they off, needed. Pay off a doctor, But they man. also said there was plenty of sketchy drug dealers that just gave them stuff, too. So. <laughs> yeah. Those for when that's, you're in a pinch. So you just dump that stuff and keep the scripts, yeah. <laughs> I do wonder if he had, like, a fourth pocket in there that was just like, grab bag. <laughs> this, is, this, is the dro- this is the drop. Yeah. There's, like, a little cord so you can <laughs> this is actually dump it all. If you drop one, <laughs> you just put it in here, mm-hmm. and then we play pill roulette at night yeah it's kind of fun <laughs> in the, if you take all of them at the same time it probably just keeps you level right yeah back to center <laughs> i can always empathize with the musicians quite a bit with their heavy drug use um i say empathize not sympathize because i am not in that boat but we have said time and time again that touring while fun to an extent is mostly boring and monotonous with a lot of travel and sitting around in dressing rooms so just as an example they would use the leapers to get them up and moving for the day or for the show and then pop the sleepers to crash to get some rest, and then pop the leapers to wake back up, but you can't be energized all day while you're just sitting around. Mm -hmm. So then you take the creepers when you relax, Mm -hmm. but then you need to be amped up for the show. So then you take the leapers again, and then you take the creepers to calm down, and Mm -hmm. then you take the sleepers Mm -hmm. to sleep, and yada, yada, Mm -hmm. yada. It's an endless cycle. Oh, yeah, the many tragedies that discovering hot yoga sooner could have prevented. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't know. Are you talking like like yoga in a a sauna? You know, yeah, the one that turned... Turn the, the turn the freaking thermostat all just the way up. Just and, making sure I understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank endorphins you. on endorphins, man. <laughs> That'll do whatever you need. <laughs> you got to keep that know. cycle in in stone. Somehow. It'll put you to sleep. It'll wake you up. It's all about where oh, you're God. where you're starting. That's see, where's neutral. I know one other thing that I can use to get that exact effect <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I'm listening. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. All of this was also mixed with copious weeds, drinking, LSD, and DMT. My stomach is turning, and there's a strange man in the corner. We are really talking <laughs> about some real drugs right now, because oh, I yeah, had buddy. no idea that DMT was in the mix. Yeah, I didn't oh, yeah. either, really. That they, is... were all just, they were sprinkling DMT on top of it like it was Parmesan on spaghetti. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Even now, Noel, Mitch, and Jimmy were not on the best of terms. They were cordial, but tensions were starting to grow. Jimmy and Mitch stayed closer than Noel and anyone, and that in itself caused tensions. Noel was very much beginning to feel the same way that Jimmy had felt when he was playing with all those bands back in the Chitlin circuit. The only difference was that Jimmy was also telling Noel how to play his parts in the studio, and if Noel didn't want to play, Jimmy himself could step in and play the parts on bass, as Jimmy was a better bassist than Noel. Fair, but mean, yeah. but fair. God, that would be so hurtful. Mm. Well, Jimmy's a better guitarist. Neither of them knew how to play bass. Base. True. Yeah. Translates. Yep. <laughs> Get out of the way. And of course, this was not just a tour of drugs and rock and roll. 
Sex was also a regular pastime, with Noel and Mitch getting plenty of action, but Jimmy, obviously being the king, always having women hanging off him and having naked women waiting for him in his hotel room bed when he arrived back in the room nearly every night. The rough life of a famous touring musician. <laughs> well, it's got to be, I just want to sleep. Yeah. I just need a little <laughs> sleep. Please, please. Go can away. Just please. Can we just cuddle tonight? It's shriveling. I'm sure that didn't happen often. No, Jimmy was a freaking stallion. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was a stallion, a mustang. He I've was seen everything. The, I've seen the pictures. You get it, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy was so comfortable with all the sex and promiscuity that he had no problem agreeing to a proposition to have his penis made into a plaster mold. Yeah, like I I think Ethan was just implying you can see yep. the evidence, and it's pretty clear why he wasn't very shy. Yeah. I, yeah. I saw the pictures. Yeah, he was a proud man. <laughs> can of Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh. An artist and friend of a woman that Mitch had slept with named Cynthia Albritton, a.k.a. Cynthia Plaster Caster, and her friend Diane, a.k.a. Pest, but why? created a... What? But why? Why Pest? Yeah, oh, because she was annoying as fuck. <laughs> It's got to be it. I just yeah. need your help. I don't even want you I here. Just please. Pest, shut the fuck Pest. up. Go get the mold. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Uh, know. Get the materials. They created a two-woman club named the Plaster Casters of Chicago, and they wanted to immortalize the genitalia of the famous. So they reached out to Jimmy, and he readily agreed. Cynthia was an art student at the University of Illinois, and they were given an assignment to make plaster castings of whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. So she had the very art idea of doing rock stars dongs. Hell yeah. And this is one of those things that has so many different stories as to how it all came to be. Like this story where they just got in touch with him from Mitch's contact um, <laughs> another where Cynthia like met him outside a show gave him the rundown he agreed but my favorite was rundown. in room full of mirrors yeah gave him the rundown <laughs> my favorite's from room full of mirrors where they claimed that they were in the limo heading back to the hotel after a show in Chicago and Cynthia and her friends pulled up next to him and like she hung out the window with a briefcase that said plaster casters of chicago on the side and he had heard about them from mitch so he just like signaled to follow the limo to the hotel which had to be a sight to see if that's true <laughs> <laughs> that's gotta be it what the fuck's happening that's it's just like it. yeah they're just like hey Hey, can we cast your dong? Can we put dental mold all over your dick? <laughs> but like, would you say the no? fact that they're driven driving down Chicago streets, all that they can actually hear is just like because <laughs> of the wind. Get it? Yeah, the windy weird. city. Yes. Very windy. Well, also because they're driving with windows down, trying to speak in traffic. A lot of traffic too. Yeah. So the plaster casters of Chicago said that they would suck him off to get him hard, and then they would plunge it into the mold. <laughs> To harden as much as possible before it got soft. It's the old sucking mold method. The Greeks used to use that one. <laughs> Is that true? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, Fascinating. Read it in a book. <laughs> Not history. Oh. Wow, buddy. <laughs> nice. That's great. Yeah. So Jimmy showed up to their apartment on February 28th and had his mold made. And they also made a mold for Noel. And since then have created over 75 molds of both men's penises and women's boobs, getting musical artists, road managers, producers, artists, comedians, cartoonists, and more to give themselves to this duo. This ended up being way less sexy than it might sound to some. I don't think depending. it's... Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for you either? Okay. Yeah, not for me. <laughs> well, they didn't l put any lubes on his pubes, and so they got stuck in the mold, and they had to, like, 
pull each one out <laughs> gently one by one and he got so frustrated with how long it was taking i guess he started stimulating himself with the mold which is already <laughs> weird but then their tour manager jerry opened the door and but the whole tour was so wild that he just like looked around at everything going on he was like yeah, let me know when this is done and just walk back out. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. You, yeah. you've been, we've all been so shocked where it's just you, your your non-reaction is the reaction. I get I'm that. I'm just going to leave. Yeah. I don't care. I'm just leaving. My brain can't process this. Yeah. All right. So when you say like stimulated himself with the mold, was he like like blasting himself with it or was he just like moving it up and down like jerking himself off with it? I don't get it. He was still inside of it. Okay. Was... Okay. Just making sure That's I got a... it. Yeah. Technically, though, that's like a once-in-a-lifetime op. It's like it's like when drummers make their in-ear monitors fit them perfectly. <laughs> and it's like, that's I'll never have headphones as good as this. So it was it's perfect for I'll him. never have a yeah. tighter hand around my penis. That was exactly, exactly. what they said. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and so just as one last note on the plaster casters, a huge fan of theirs and someone who would help them further their goal, though never himself participating, was Frank Zappa, who at one point entrusted all the moldings to his manager, Mr. Herb Cohen, who we talked about at length in our Tom Waits series. And of course, if you so wish, you can go look up the molding of Jimmy and Noel's members. And I think you'll be able to tell pretty quickly which is which. One big old vein on that dude. Oh, yeah, he's got that Milky Way dick vein. <laughs> <laughs> so after they left the plaster casters, they kept on their tour for another string of shows, playing around the Midwest and all over on the East Coast. And even while the tour was planned, shows were being added to the schedule, further increasing all the stresses and the drug uses that go along with it. They finally made it back to New York City in early March. March, where Jimmy could relax slightly more and even got back into the studio to record some new stuff, which he hadn't been able to do for the last month and a half. He went into Sound Center Studios to lay down the beginnings of some new songs for his new album. He also enjoyed a few days of jamming with his old friends, including Eric Clapton and the quickly growing Jim Morrison. This could have been so cool, but as you might know, Jim Morrison had a bit of a reputation for his behavior, we'll say. Yeah. And they're having a jam session at a venue called The Scene Club. He loved loved The Scene Club. Yeah. That was like one of his favorite places in New York. He jams there with so many people. It's pretty sick, all the everything that happened there. But yeah. this time they were trying to record, and Morrison was super wasted and just kept shouting, I want to suck your cock, like, at Jimmy. <laughs> And I guess it only stopped because Janis Joplin, who was also there, broke a bottle over his head and knocked him out. And there are multiple reports of that one. <laughs> you know, Jim Morrison did like his booze. And you, yeah. when we cover them, you'll learn a lot about that, too. Oh, yeah. Apparently, Janice's was just a bit too strong for him, though. <laughs> there is another story, too, where Jimmy's playing. So badass. And Jim Morrison wants to come up on stage. Or he comes up on stage, and he's obviously, again, wasted. And and he comes up, and Jim, and he's like, hey, let me sing. Let me sing. And, and Jimmy's like, no. And Jim Morrison looks at him, and he's like, do you know who I am? I'm Jim Morrison of The Doors. And then Jimmy just looks at him and just says, and I'm Jimmy Hendrix. Yeah, he's and like, I, I know who you are, and I'm Jimmy You know what's Hendrix. really funny about this little scenario here? I'm Jimmy Hendrix, yeah. What? All three of them are in the 27 Club. That's true, buddy. Go check out our episode. <laughs> <laughs> After this, it was back out to keep touring, which went well for the most part, besides some equipment issues, with a U-Haul running off with their equipment for almost two months, and them having to scramble to find replacements, and one venue nearly canceling the show because the small loading crew of Just Neville didn't have a union card. <laughs> And so the venue wouldn't let anyone touch any equipment. 
though a compromise was made that said that the show could go on as long as no one touched any equipment except for the venue stagehands. Still very much a thing. Oh, yeah. Unions we are, know you yeah. didn't pay your fucking dues, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> And Neville, who tried to take it easy after the ordeal, took too much ephedrine and basically passed out in the dressing room. <laughs> so a man named Hugh Hopper, who was the bassist for Sound Machine, one of the opening bands, had to act as the road and stage manager for the night. I just, that's stri- literal adrenaline. Yeah. yeah. Like, how much adrenaline do you have to take where you just skip to this crash stage? I'm no scientist, but I'd guess a lot. But, yeah. I mean, if you, you know, you're driving all night, you're driving all day, you get there, you haven't eaten anything. It's like drinking a like a double espresso <laughs> immediately on an empty stomach, and you're like, oh, I'm going to vomit. Yeah. It's like doing that, but 10 <laughs> times worse. Like you, know? you just pass out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And during the show, there was a break because there was an apparent bomb threat. And after this, the crowd tore the place apart while Hugh and the stagehands quickly loaded everything back into the truck and bailed. So I read that after they realized it wasn't real, they went back out and Jimmy said, nobody but Jimmy burns a house down. And then they finished. And I'm just choosing to believe that because that's badass. Oh, that's fucking awesome. So gnarly. Go get him, Jimmy. But right near the end of their tour, things changed. When on April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated outside his motel room in Memphis, Tennessee, ushering a new wave of protests in the civil rights movement, mainly one of violence and destruction, with protests and riots lasting for days in over 100 cities. And in all, more than 40 people were killed and another 3,500 were injured and 27 thousand arrests were made wow twenty seven thousand arrests that's a lot of people yeah. arrested i'm sure they got the guy that killed martin luther king too i don't know when they got him oh they didn't yeah. well they they got a guy they got somebody <laughs> they got a they got a patsy yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't know i don't no, know I'm, yeah. I'm not getting into that that's for damn sure <laughs> here it's something like a can of worms i'm not looking to open <laughs> so jimmy and the band were sitting in a bar in virginia before a show when they found out. And they found out because there was a big group of white men at the table nearby, like, celebrating, <laughs> popping champagne. <sighs> they asked what was going on, and the waitress told them. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, so oh it's not God. really that different. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, while those around him were pretty frightened about everything, Jimmy himself was quiet and subdued showing no reaction one way or another, as he knew any reaction could provoke the already hostile environment he found himself in, more often than not here in America. They played their show, then headed back to Newark, which I mentioned in the last episode had a terrible riot shortly after they arrived the year before, and now they were going into it in the middle of another. The streets were deserted, save the armored trucks on every street corner and the distant sporadic sound of gunfire and yelling. Wild Thing pointed out that the Capitol had machine guns mounted on every step and fear rioters would attempt to storm the building rather than just kind of letting them in. Uh, they only let them in when the rioters are in league with the current administration. Mm, just pigment played a big part in that. Yeah. We're not a political podcast. They didn't plan enough. Christ. That's the problem. They didn't plan enough. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> known about for long enough. Yeah, it's not like it was all over the internet and like yeah. there was a set date. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That's <laughs> 
Oh, great. The driver taking the band to the show demanded that Jimmy sit up front to further protect him with the rest of the band in the back. They loaded in the equipment as quickly as they could just to get off the streets and collapsed the night from two shows into one. The place was packed, maybe to see the band, maybe just to try to forget about the world for a little bit, but probably a little bit of both. Yeah, and a little difference that um, both shows were, they were sold out with 2,000 tickets each, but like they... Mm got forced to cancel the second one and only 400 people showed up to the first because no one was like leaving their homes see i read that or I, I my my story said that they arrived late so they actually arrived after the first show was supposed to start mm-hmm. so that's why they collapsed it into one show and it was packed mm. it was packed so much that there were a lot of fears that there was going to be an attack during the show on Jimmy, but nothing came. Rather, Jimmy walked out on stage when the band was set to start and then said, quote, This number is for a friend of mine. And Jimmy, Noel, and Mitch played an entirely improvised piece that was as inspirational as it was sad. It seemed to wrap up the feelings of the anguish and disturbance and fear and anger and hopelessness that the world had felt for the past 24 hours. And once they ended the piece, Jimmy and the band walked off stage and left the packed house in tears. Yeah, it's nuts. They said there no applause happened because everyone was mm-hmm. just sobbing. Like it was very clearly a funeral yeah, dirge. Yeah, 100%. And as Jimmy had done so many times before and would do so many times in the future, he let the music speak for him and speak for the world. And unfortunately, as far as I can tell, there was no recording of this set. Jimmy had one more show before the tour was officially wrapped up on April 6th. And after that, it was once again relaxing in New York City with the members doing their own thing, including Neville, who actually quit after the tour, as he felt the fun of the Jimi Hendrix experience was coming to an end. I mean, Neville, even without the, all the world events going on, he got stuck driving the U-Haul and the trailer to every show when everyone else flew. And he said he drove 19,000 miles over nine months. So it's a lot. That's more than 2,000 a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's rough. I think that Hugh rode with him. Hugh uh, Hugh Hopper, the bassist for, for uh, soft, uh, soft Machine. Oh. I think that's how it was. But again, that's even only... if you have a, <laughs> yeah. a co-partner, a co- co-pilot, You got your road dog, but it doesn't make driving fun. Yeah. Yeah, not, not great. So... The band, and especially Jimmy, took this time to work on new material and spent his nights jamming with musicians like Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, Ted Nugent, Jeff Beck, and others. Music was now feeling more cathartic than in the past, as the country was still in turmoil and Jimmy was really beginning to understand the gravity of the world around him and his place in it. I bet the overwhelming feeling of like seeing how high your music is charting at the time had to be a pretty scary indicator as to how important he was in society, because, I mean, a black man has just been killed who had a pretty big following, and it's got to be a little scary. Yeah, the oh, most important yes. black man in America yeah. at the time. And now you're a charting black man in the you're U.S. You're a big spotlight. Yeah. 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 Who is part of the counterculture movement mm-hmm. to exactly. an extent. Yep. I mean, yes. you know, he didn't take too hard of a stance at this time one way or another, but... He took a stance in his in his styling and in his in his attitude and stuff. So it was definitely clear where he was going with yeah. it. And terrifying, I'm sure. Pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. Between the murder of MLK and its aftermath, as well as the ramping up in Vietnam, Jimmy was realizing and forming opinions and attitudes towards the world that he worked out through his music. And luckily, he was able to get into the studio to record it all. He first went into the record plant in New York City on April 18th to begin recording. 
finally we get to talk about this place before it gets relocated Woo! to LA and becomes ground zero for some Fleetwood Mac orgies. Hot, sweaty, oh. unshowered orgies. Mm-hmm. Buddy, mm-hmm. they didn't relocate. They franchised. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they yeah, franchised this bad boy. There were three record plant locations in all, and Fleetwood recorded primarily at the Sausalito location, not the LA Sausalito. location. Uh, I was just, I wanted you to say it. I know, I know. Yeah, just, just for the just, listener. Thank you so much. Yeah, just for the <sighs> Yeah, well, they yeah they would have known that I guess if they would have listened to our Fleetwood Mac series. So they just might not have remembered. So yeah, <laughs> good point. Just helping out. Good point. Good Refresher. point. Refresher. <laughs> and unlike last time, he was going to make sure to take his time this time. Whenever he would do interviews, he would make it known that he was unhappy with how quickly Axis was recorded. Because remember, it was completed from start to finish in 16 days. He would flat out tell reporters that he was unhappy with it, which made Mike Jeffrey very mad as it was breaking the facade of this perfect little artist. In one interview, he said that Bold is Love, Little Wing, and Little Miss Lover were the only two, only three songs on the album that he liked. Mm-hmm. And he followed that up with, our next EP is going to be exactly what we, I, want it to be, <laughs> or else. And so you can imagine that Mike did not think that was great for optics yeah and mike will become very important in just a just a couple minutes. <sighs> you have no idea <laughs> <laughs> so the studio was booked for jimmy and the band for the next three months it would be theirs to use as they pleased and boy did they use it mm-hmm. and track records the uk label that they were signed to was pretty sick of being blown off for this long because they hadn't been there for quite a while or they hadn't put anything out there yeah. for quite a while And they knew that they could still capitalize on Jimmy's most popular early hits. So on April 12th, they released Smash Hits, which actually included all the singles released from Are You Experienced in one place for the first time, which is likely what helped it reach number six on the charts and certified silver in the UK. seems so early to be releasing a hits album. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Jimmy didn't really care about this release very much as he was back in the city that he loved, getting to do what he wanted, record once again. Yeah, I think he didn't care because it took a little pressure off him. Like, yeah. Normally, artists having a greatest hits album release, they hate that, but they were still expected to release two albums and four singles a year, so he got a little breathing room. Well, this is kind of a unique greatest hits album because this isn't like, we're pulling all the good stuff off of your albums and then then we're just saying these these 18 songs are great and the rest of the stuff you did is absolute dog shit. (laughs) What they did with, with the Smash Hits album is they took all the singles and put them in one place and then just took a couple songs off of Are You Experienced. Mm. So it was it was it was more so like a, here's a culmination of everything so you can only you only have to listen to one vinyl record instead of listening to to seven uh, seven inches or four seven inches or whatever they are you know culmination nice one of the rare climbing up the mountains right. greatest hits that came out instead of free falling down the other side very different <laughs> so jimmy would go to places and jam and then come back to the studio early in the morning or rather late at night and continue to jam and record bits that could be used later and of course jimmy asked eddie kramer to come over from england to stay in new york to help produce and engineer the album alongside the record plants in-house engineer gary kelgren gotta have eddie in the room Mm. it's kind of required of course but he also liked to pretty much invite anyone who had been at the club the night before back to the studio with him which no one but jimmy liked yeah jimmy was jimmy would do that not eddie eddie was there to do work oh yeah jimmy's bringing everything 
everybody. Yeah. She was there to have a good time oh, and yeah. maybe record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a quick little fun fact here. Uh, oh, Gary us. Kelgren is from Shenandoah, Iowa, same town as the Everly Brothers. That, is, that one is a fun fact. See? That's, that one's more fun. Wait, the Everly Brothers were from Iowa? Yeah, they're from Shenandoah, Iowa. I think we covered that in our uh, In Wayland Guns N' Roses. Oh, yeah, Guns N' Roses. That's right, because yep. Aaron Everly. Yep, because Aaron Everly. Oh. Yep. There you go. The daughter of one <laughs> of the brothers. All the way back. All the way back to number one. It's not just, I'm giving them chances to remember if they forget. <laughs> <laughs> we are all over the map, it's, and I love it. So Jimmy knew that recording was going to be a big endeavor with his plan even to make this into a double album, which was still a pretty novel concept at the time with only a few big ones being released. Jimmy felt at home instantly once he was in the studio, though. While the Jimi Hendrix experience was something that everyone said you had to experience live, Jimmy was, for all intents and purposes, a studio musician at heart. He saw the Jimi Hendrix experience fading slowly as his time transitioned from being on stage to being in the studio. It's got to be a nice thought, at least, leaving all the pressure behind you and just focusing on the art. Yeah. But sadly, the public does not care about your preference. Yo, you fuck. <laughs> as does Mike Jeffrey not care. Not one bit. Not one goddamn bit. This nope. brought even more animosity amongst the trio, as Noel hated sitting around while Jimmy tinkered and tweaked and repeated over and over. So he basically made his own schedule, not showing up when Jimmy was there and then showing up when Jimmy was gone. And then he used Gary to record some of his own material. And Jimmy seemed to care very little about this because he loved bringing in musicians of his own to play with him. And bartenders and waitresses mm -hmm. and friends and the guy that was drinking in the booth by himself. <laughs> you know what? All these big bands, they get these tours that have everything. They they get they get spiritual healers that get their own tour bus, and they get oh yeah, they get fortune tellers. Exactly, they get it tarot all. Tarot card readings. Yeah. Jimmy Jimmy got palm readings. Jimmy got fucking Neville Chester's for a little bit as his whole road crew. So I'm giving him a pass. He can bring these people into the studio that he is paying for in the end he just loved everyday people man he wanted yep. to party that's all he yep. wanted he it's just true. wanted to have a good time yep. <laughs> so right. god bless him You're right. <laughs> so over the course of his time in the record plant from mid-april to late august jimmy would have no less than 10 artists and one entire backup band play on the album in addition to noel mitch and jimmy himself jimmy just loves everyday people that's all we're saying he loves it mm. loves yeah. it i fuck me i will <laughs> just tell me when baby i might <laughs> let me bring my poppers and we'll get going buddy i'll bring oh. a mold <laughs> all right all right <laughs> <laughs> oh do you think that they do you think that they made a do you think you could buy a Jimi Hendrix dildo? That's what I'm going to ask. Easily. I bet. Yeah. 100%? I hope. I bet. I mean, I hope. Austin, I... Austin immediately went full keyboard warrior to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> I saw his hands know. hit the keyboard so fast. I'm Googling Jimi Hendrix dildo. That's what I Googled. Perfect. Yep. And let me tell you, it's not looking like No, it doesn't look not. great, does it? No, it's not. They've got the template. Yeah. yeah. They, have, they have the mold. I bet, hey, I bet if you made a phone call, dude, you could. Cynthia. Let's get this business yeah, going. Yeah, let's make we, this there's happen. A, there's, a, there's a market here. There is a market. You're Call right. us, please. Mm. Please. That's unfortunate. Yep. So the musicians who played on this album included Jack Cassidy of Jefferson Airplane, Buddy Miles, who will become a common name in the upcoming episodes, The Sweet Inspirations, an all-girl group who sang backup on the song Burning of the Midnight Lamp, Steve Winwood, and Brian Jones. So... He didn't have just anyone playing alongside him. He had some big names. Mm -hmm. Chaz was also there to help produce the album, but felt 
almost instantly that he was being shut out of the process, with Jimmy taking a larger role and being much more vocal about what he wanted on the album. Or else. Or else. I'm doing it my way. I want it. I'm I got I want it my way. Absolutely. Chaz. <laughs> Mike Frank Sinatra. Bingo. Mm-hmm. I did it my way. That's the line. Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> You're so close. Oh, we got there. We got there. <laughs> How would you feel? Uh, so Chaz <laughs> So Chaz had always pushed for pop-centric albums from Jimmy as they were easy to promote and had a rough formula to them, making them easier to produce. But for the first time, Jimmy began really pushing back. You can imagine where this is going. Mm. Are you trying to tell me that Jimmy's going to write a pop album? The writing is on the wall. Uh, you know what? I'm just telling a story, and you can interpret it however <laughs> we'll you want. We'll figure it out. I'll let you guys know. And when I figure it out, I'll let everyone know. Perfect. Thank you. So this, paired with all the drug use going on in the group, pushed Chaz too far. And by the end of the summer in 1968, Chaz Chandler, the man who had founded Jimi Hendrix and brought him over to London, began making plans with Mike Jeffrey to be bought out for $300,000 in 1968. Chaz did help with some financials and behind-the-scenes work for a while, but on September 24th, Chaz legally left as Jimmy's manager and producer. I don't think Jimmy's writing a pop out. <laughs> no, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it, does it? <laughs> no, nope, it doesn't seem like it. And with that, Jimmy had one sole manager, Ed Chalpin. He did it. The man got his day. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, sorry, wait. Nope, I'm sorry. Mike Jeffrey. Shit. Oh. Ed will get his day. Don't you worry for one second. Oh, you will. <laughs> and, and while Jimmy was happy with this on the surface, or at the time, as he had essentially unlimited freedom in the studio with Chaz all but out of the way, and Jimmy and Mike being drug buds who oftentimes smoke weed and did acid together, Mike knew little about the music world and looked only at making money and being a businessman. No artist wants to be told what to do with their art, but Chaz was the only person who told Jimmy anything like it is, and he was the only person who had the real experience as a professional musician. So while Jimmy hated being told what to do, now the only manager he has is basically a professional con man and yes man. Yeah, well, and and Mike will blatantly work in in the opposite of Jimmy's interests if it benefits his own interests. Yes. Yeah. Remember, yeah, remember this was the guy. Mike was the guy who put Jimmy with the monkeys because he thought that since the monkeys were big in America, this would be a slam dunk tour. That's the kind of businessman Mike Jeffrey was. Smart. And of course, making music in a studio isn't making money, and so is going to be back out on the road for the group. Some shows were planned, and others were added on to bring in more money. And one of the first of the shows played was the Miami Pop Festival in Hollandale, a town just north of Miami, on May 18th. I think Hollandale Pop Festival has a great ring to it, yep. but it also has yeah. the issue of where the fuck is Hollandale. <laughs> it does sound like it should be in in Western Europe or something. Yes. Scandinavia. Maybe in Holland. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was a big festival thought up by Michael Lang, who would go on later to create another big festival important to this story. Mm. God, it's crazy to think that the guy who founded Ozfest would would show up in this episode. (laughs) Yep. That's crazy, man. Yep. (laughs) 
made it in. Oh, that's good. So this festival, the Miami Pop Festival, was going to have names like Frank Zappa, Arthur Brown, Chuck Berry, and many others, all playing across three large flatbed truck stages. I can't believe Jimmy the guy played who came on- up with Laser Fest got all those names. <laughs> God. Oh my God. We can't do this again. It's crazy to think that the guy that found it not fest just is going to show up in the Jimi Hendrix episode. It's crazy. Here we go. Just get him out. Just get him out. <laughs> I'm done. Let me know. Let me know. I'm done. <laughs> Three is enough. Three is the perfect. Lollapalooza? Oh, there we go. Too many. Too many. It's lost its fun. It's done. Something about Bonnaroo. <laughs> You, if you give us pause, we'll keep going. <laughs> we'll keep no, I'm giving you your platform that you're so clearly Slow desiring. Slow pitch. Let me hit it. <laughs> okay, Dad. We'll be good. All right. Here we go. Jimmy played on the first of two nights with the show being a great success and the 25,000 people in attendance loving it. But the next day was completely washed out by heavy rain with no one being able to play and leaving the organizers about 60 grand in the hole. Jerry, Jimmy, Noel, and Mitch were waiting to get paid when they watched as an armored truck rolled up to take the money that was there from the first day. And then Michael Langs hired cops trying to stop them, but then locking themselves in the truck so they could get paid. And the whole thing ended up with these armed men arguing while the band stood by and watched. There was no shootout, but no one got paid either. Oh, my God. That's a way cooler story than what I read, because <laughs> mine is a lot less Old West standoff and a lot more yakety sacks. Don't talk back. <laughs> Basically, the show got rained out, and, <laughs> and Jimmy, Frank Zappa, Arthur Brown, and John Lee Hooker like started a jam session in the hotel bar, which sounds incredible, but Mike pulled everyone aside and was like, hey, they're not paying us and we don't have any cash to pay for the hotel. So they went through the bathroom windows. (laughs) (laughs) You know, talking about Arthur Brown and Jimmy, I'd pay good money to see Jimmy play Arthur Brown's fire. That'd be awesome. That could be fun. Yeah. Just jamming. Yeah. Yeah. But Austin, I think that happened as well. So I think both things happened. Uh, But I think the second thing happened, them sneaking out of a window (laughs) because they didn't have any money was a result of them having no money because they didn't get paid for playing there. That's fair. Plan B. Yes. So I think I think we're all correct here. (laughs) But the event did inspire Jimmy to write the song Rainy Day Dream Away. And shortly after that, it was off to Europe to perform some shows with the band playing in Italy and Switzerland, playing nine shows over nine days with a three day break in the middle. So Jimmy could fly back to New York to again talk about the Ed Chalpin as it was continuing to boil and cause everyone headaches in both the U.S. and in England. We've mentioned it a few times, but I don't think we've put enough emphasis on it because this whole ordeal has been going on in the background the entire time. And it's not like a small thing like this was actually costing Jimmy upwards of $4,000 a month just in the legal fees because ever like with everyone involved it was just dragging on. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ed Chalpin is the hemorrhoids of this whole entire story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I absolutely. hate when I wipe and I feel those things. <laughs> just just causing just enough discomfort to let you know I'm still here. I got special wipes just for him. Wow. It happens, man. I'm almost that 30. The story to just yeah, straight you're, to you. you're, you're personalizing it. <laughs> no more implications. <laughs> just Making it yeah. so personal. Just need you to know. <laughs> and so after the shows, it was back to New York to keep recording and jamming. 
happening. And it would be a constant flip-flop of Jimmy having fun in the studio and then having to go back out and play a slew of shows across the U.S. with Jimmy, Noel, and Mitch just putting in their time on the road so Jimmy could get back into the studio, Mitch could help out in the studio when needed, and Noel could work on developing hey, a new Hey, group. hey, hey, slow down. Spoiler alert. Ooh, you feel, you feel your spidey senses tingling yeah, on I something? I think something's about to change. I think we've spoiled hmm. that about six or seven times already. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's happened before. What is that? Is that a fork? <laughs> Is that a fork in the road? All right, let's get there. Hey. <laughs> nice. Everybody's <laughs> on. Middle. Yeah, you guys are all on top tonight. God, We're all riding a... two-wheeled vehicles. Fun Segways. Friday night, baby. Fun Friday night for us. And in the middle of all this is when we finally get to mostly close out the saga that is the human hemorrhoid, Ed Chalpin, and PPX records. Not my hemorrhoids. Not your Jesus. specific hemorrhoids. <laughs> that you definitely On your have. specific ass. That I, yeah, I have the wipes. I'll post a picture. Okay. Please do. Please do. <laughs> all right. Thank you. You're offering all this, just yeah, so we're no, all... Yeah, this is this is free. Word is bond, free. though, so... Yep. Is it, yeah. Don't he's leaving Austin's leaving it in the episode, so if you yep. don't, you're a liar. The caption will be if you don't have these, you're not almost thirty. <laughs> perfect. Yep. That's perfect. That doesn't even relate to the episode. That's just you. Yeah, that's just me saying perfect. it. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Good. All right. Back back to Ed. Back to Ed. Thank We're done talking so about your Thank your you. M, right? Yeah. Yeah. Get over it. <laughs> I am no. I'm not stuck on it. You're stuck on so, it. So Ed had been fighting with Mike. Track Records, Polydor Records, and Warner Brothers for over a year now in a lengthy, costly legal battle on who got the rights to all of Jimmy's music and how Ed should be paid. Oh, Ed gets paid. Oh, <laughs> he gets paid, baby. <laughs> there were varying degrees to which everyone thought the case should be handled, but the biggest contender and the biggest voice was by far Warner, no as they would likely have the hardest fight since they were based in the same country as PPX. So their decision was to settle. They wanted this to stay out of the courts as much as possible because even though this was a David versus Goliath situation, Warner was genuinely worried that a court would see the $1 and 1% contract as completely valid and force Warner to give Ed all or some of the rights to Jimmy's music. Honestly, there is that chance they could have got got, but mm. if you get offered a settlement from Warner Brothers, you take it, and you take it right to the bank. Oh, yeah. This was not an Aaron Brockovich situation by any means. <laughs> no, no, no. Imagine if today, instead of Warner Brothers, it was PPX Records that was number one. Oh, man. Because that's what it could have been. I mean, not really, but maybe. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go ahead and say no. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, think so. I did say probably not. Because but, Warner yeah. Brothers was had Sinatra under their belt at this yeah. point. They, I mean, they had all of, all of Polydor was just cooking along with them and, and PPX was literally based out of one studio in the in the ground floor of a hotel. So it's not realistic. It's a fun it's a fun thought. David Imagine the reality where he finds the perfect song to change. <laughs> Good fucking point. Just kill it's Warner. Huge. Good point. <laughs> Could so happen. Warner decided that the best way to get out from under all of this was to do it on their terms and not on a court's terms. So they sat down with Ed and the agreement was made as follows. Ed would get 2% of the earnings from Are You Experienced, Acts as Bold as Love, and the album Jimmy had been working on at the record plant whenever that came out. Plus, he would get the complete rights to Jimmy's fourth album with a minimum payout of $200,000 from Warner, meaning he could do whatever he wanted with it. But he was guaranteed at least $200,000. Right around $1.5 million now. And just as a spoiler... He ends up selling that album to Capitol Records 
for one million dollars of back then money of back then. yeah yeah which is whatever what's that i don't know it depends oh, it, de- okay. it, it depends on the year i don't know when he sold it. oh that's fair yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought it was in the 90s but i could be wrong yeah that i guess doesn't I matter no a lot yeah. of money a lot of money yeah yeah a million dollars in 2021 money is a lot of money that's yeah. true that's yeah. still a lot of yeah it's still <laughs> I don't have Dollar's it. not worth anything anymore, but it's still it's still the fiat currency. It's not real. <laughs> God, that's nuts, though, because like, so they 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 were like, okay, how about all profits from the next album he makes go to you? But what Jimmy does to circumvent that is very clever. Mm-hmm. I don't like, I don't know if we'll get into it, but it is very clever. Oh, we'll get a hundred percent into it in the next episode. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. Yes, but yes. yeah, what he does is. <laughs> It's brilliant. I love it. Yep. And also got to keep the records that he had done at 76 Studios with Jimmy, plus everything that he had done with Jimmy with Curtis Knight. How would you feel? How would you feel? That's one. (laughs) And they put out an album at one point saying that's titled, You Can't Use My Name. (laughs) That's what they call the album. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. Get him in the shins. Come on. Give me a break. And all of this. (laughs) And all of this. For a contract that Jimmy signed for $1 in 1965 and would be expiring on its own in just a few short months. Though that didn't change the legality of the time the contract was valid. So, all things considered, not a bad return on investment. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Ed was making a living with those ripoffs, but this is like yeah. a small lottery. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not... Yeah, not a small lottery either. I was say, you're getting a Warner <laughs> Brothers lottery, ticket. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and while I couldn't find exactly how much he made from this agreement in total by today's standards up to today, I can tell you that his net worth, according to the internet, is anywhere between $5 million and some estimates being as high as $15 million. Jeez. And he runs PPX Records, a record label you've never heard. Yep. <laughs> And while we and while we will mostly leave Ed here, he will pop up again as he jumps across the pond to attempt to cash in just a bit more. Yeah, Ed realizes there's a few entities he hasn't sued yet. <laughs> Incredible. Genius. <laughs> and of course, Mike had to make it dirty mm. when after all was said and done, Warner tried to come after Mike, Jimmy's manager, since he was the manager who signed and caused the whole issue in the first place as his contract <laughs> was the issue with PPX's contract. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But Mike had put in an indemnity clause in the contract that Jimmy signed, which stated that Yameta, the shell corporation that Jimmy had signed with, with Mike and John Hillman, would not be responsible financially if something like this would happen. Just a scaly little snake. You just can't mm. get your goddamn hands on The foresight on this man. The glasses <sighs> make sense with how much foresight this asshole has. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amplified. Goddamn <laughs> Nigel Thornberry is a goddamn genius. <laughs> <laughs> and since Jimmy blindly Smashing. signed, <laughs> he, he was on the hook for paying back Warner. It's so sad that he... That it doesn't like open Jimmy's eyes to Mike. That he doesn't take away the lesson that this guy, who when we first met knew I was not familiar with the business, he put this thing in my contract that could put all the blame on me. Like it's not someone I should trust. No, nope. Jimmy signed a contract for one dollar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, I'm gonna say yep. he didn't. He wasn't thinking too hard, and he yep. definitely didn't. You know, scour the the contract for anything he didn't agree with. It was. 
here's a promise of fame. They're like, hey, I just feel like at least, if nothing else, you pay this and take that, but be like, I got to get away from Mike. Oh, yeah. Well, he becomes disillusioned at the end, but it's a while from now. Yeah. It's, it's right near the end is when Sadly. he really starts to understand. And some would yeah. say uh, it, it came with, with uh, dire dire results. Some would say. Oh, that. my God. Maybe some would say. a little say. too close. Oh, my God. We'll get into you it in a couple of episodes. don't even know. A little close. You don't even know where it's going if you don't know. <laughs> if you don't know, you should know. <laughs> Sneaky little bastard. While Warner Brother had a financial obligation to end this case to protect their assets, against being frozen during litigation, they didn't want to flat out lose money, hence making Jimmy pay. Mm. Jimmy would be charged against his future royalties to pay all of it back. And after all this was said and done, Mike essentially worked to cut himself out of Yameta (laughs) and worked directly with Warners to get a larger slice of the pie on anything Jimi Hendrix experience, going as far as to have the members of the band sign a contract not to have any money sent to Yameta, instead going to Jeffrey and Chandler, Inc., their new U.S.-based office. This man grifted the Shell Corporation he created to dodge the IRS. He scammed his own scam. Oh, my God. It's just... it's. Just something, isn't it? And this is what rich people still do. This oh, is yeah. still, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Just ask Pfizer. Just, <laughs> yeah. <wild. laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, man. It was, it was months before Yameta knew what was going on, and they only found out when they were hit with a big audit because it was believed that they had misappropriated <gasps> funds from the animals. What? So out of the whole ordeal, naturally, Mike ended up on top. Though he did have to pay up a little bit to John Hillman because he threatened to bury him in lawsuits after the whole animals ordeal. God, grease little mongoose. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, this may be dark to say, but if there's one man who deserves to die in the way that he is most scared of dying, it is Mike Jeffrey. Hey, <laughs> hey, man, he he gets it. He does get he it. He gets exactly that. Well, That's how he, he was scared the, the whole time he was on the flight. So. That, yeah. That man shit his pants multiple wow. times, I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. Ethan went right in. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know what? I don't even care. <laughs> something. He is a scuzzy boy. Good night. I can't wait He's to talk about boy. his death. I'm kind of excited. <laughs> we'll, get yep. it. we'll get into it. We probably won't get too mm-hmm. much into it. but Just a little. Yeah. But now all things legally binding were out of the way, and the band could finish up their album, officially wrapping things up on August 27th. Though Mitch said that Jimmy could have worked on that album for a year and not been completely happy with it. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it's almost like he would need to go buy his own studio to just spend out countless hours. So the last couple days... Who could do that? So the last couple days in the studio would be sporadic, however, because the band once again found themselves out on the road on another tour across North America, starting on July 30th and playing 57 shows through the end of the year. It was a more standard touring schedule of a week or two on the road and then a few days of nothing and then repeat it gave time for the members to relax get back to new york to record and even help produce and record with the opening band ira apparent for a couple weeks and ira apparent wasn't the only band to open up for the tour they also saw groups like the amboy dukes soft machine cat mother and the all night news boys amboy dukes (laughs) (laughs) amboy dukes Put them up. <laughs> and Cat the, mother just sounds dirty. And, yeah. Well, yeah. 
That's fun. That's a fun band name. But <laughs> the most fun band on this tour was the alleged mafia-run band, mm. Vanilla Fudge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, alleged mm. mafia-run band, the same way Sinatra had alleged mafia connections. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I get it. This tour was so big that it was broken up kind of into a bunch of smaller runs, like Tony said. Legs, yeah. And Legs of the tour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. On this particular run, though, it was air apparent. I'm saying air. I'm just sticking to it. I've made my decision. Nah, whatever. I think I got drugged through the mud last episode for saying air. <laughs> It's because you're the professional here, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Not. you do it right, and I'll stick to what's we'll wrong. We'll shit on everything. You won't. Perfect. Thank you. I'll Thanks stick for... to what's easier to say. Thank for you me. for keeping my bar just a little. <laughs> yep, yep. Here to prop you up. So, Air Apparent and Soft Machine—they were the like supporting acts for this run three band bill amazing a few days into the run mike jeffrey goes up to the guys in soft machine and he tells them hey i know you have the timing for your set sorry mike jeffrey yeah keep it it british man hey i know you got the timing for your set all figured out but (laughs) Mm -hmm. a fourth band's helping on we really want these guys don't make a fuss okay and so he was pretty rattled as he told him (laughs) that which doesn't sound like that i just think he's an asshole yeah but that's a rare occurrence. He was like flustered and a little scared. Yeah, this band made Mike Jeffrey panic. Yeah, so I guess he'd gotten a call out of the blue by a guy who said he was the manager of a band called Vanilla Fudge, and he was like, "The Fudge haven't made it to the West Coast. They'd like to join you a little tour." Oh, oh you're God. making him Italian. You're making this. <laughs> I mean, the mafia is Italian, so yeah. Yeah, it's from New York. All right. And so Mike was I'll like, "Sorry, <laughs> thank you, thank you." Mike was like, "Packages full," and the guy was like. You don't understand what I'm saying. The Fudge would like to join your tour. You don't want any trouble. You let the Fudge join your tour. Yeah. After after Mike was like, "No, we don't. We don't have enough room." The guy was like, "No, you don't understand. The Fudge is joining your yeah. tour. <laughs> it will be on it." Yeah. Jeez. Scared Jeffrey into letting him come. Awesome. The it. MI the MI six guy got scared, so you know it's legit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> though I will say that anyone from the UK. Is gonna just immediately bow down to just anyone, anyone from like Long I mean, Island. I mean, the bones. Axis powers did give it to the UK pretty good. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Set oh, me dear. free, why don't yeah, there you, babe? Get out my but life, fudge is actually pretty sick. You, oh, Their yeah. whole thing was doing covers, but yeah, like slow and dirty. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool, oh, real dirty. <laughs> It's actually back really in the good. 70s, or back in the 60s, rather. Pretty pretty, uh, pretty uncommon. Yeah. It was sick. <laughs> so, the fudge wants on your little tour. <laughs> so I like that he called it a little tour. Yeah, it's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, scary-ass bands aside, the band was changing both on stage as well as off stage. Noel, Mitch, and Jimmy were not speaking much more than they had to. And as the year went on, tensions grew higher and higher, and it was becoming clear that the future of the band likely would not include the current lineup. Noel was starting a band called Fat Mattress, and Mitch was working himself into a side project called Mind Octopus. Both bad band names. <laughs> Terrible band names, yeah. I like Fat Mattress. Not like Cat Mother and the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and All Night News Boys. Fudge. And the Amber Duke Boys. Amber Duke Boys. The Amber Duke Boys. The Amber Duke Boys. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> 
god. Good band. Uh, it was it was becoming clear that things were changing in the experience. On stage, Jimmy was bringing up some of the people who he had worked with in the studio to be featured on songs during select shows. Nothing big, but just letting the audience get used to seeing more and different people than the capital J-H-E, Jimi Hendrix Experience. Got it. Mm. And Jimmy himself was changing his style, trying less of the antics the world had known for the last couple years and buckling down on just playing a great technical show. He keeps trying to evolve, but people just don't like yep, that. It's true. There would be shows that people would shout for him to burn his guitar like he had done at the Monterey Pop Festival. Do or the hope that he would go crazy and, and, and fuck the amp with the guitar. Do it. But put a dick on it. He, <laughs> but he substituted all of that for just playing a really fucking good show and he leaned heavier on the blues than he had in the past. Boom. We all know how this will go. People don't care about technical skill. They want a goddamn show. They want a show. They want to see Light it. some goddamn shit on fire. Bring the goddamn dick mold out. Just give us yep. a goddamn show. Take off your tits. <laughs> show us your shirt. Jerk yourself off with the dick mold. Ethan. Ethan, give it a different You know, I, I, don't, I don't think they He didn't understand that. the inside joke enough, so he just kind of played his own. <laughs> <laughs> but he, if there's one thing that Ethan's always done, it's just kind of always, he's always played a one-man fiddle band. Sometimes you got it. That's yeah, for sure. I love it. <laughs> so it seemed that for the first time, Jimmy was leaning into the style that he had altered years ago. Of course, he still played all the hits that people came to see, as well as some new songs that the world would get a taste of on an album. When on October 16th, 1968, Electric Ladyland was released in the United States, with track records released it in the UK just nine days later. And as the other albums had a slower climb to the top with an impressive peak, Electric Ladyland, in all its double album splendor, peaked at number one in the US just yes! a month after yes! its release. Yes! And peaked at number Doing six really in the UK three weeks after its release there. And it certified double platinum in the US and gold in the UK. Yes! God, so impressive. Finally. The album was loved by people in both countries as it leaned even more into the psychedelic rock that he was pioneering. Critics were less sure of it upon its initial release, saying that it felt muddy and it lacked direction throughout its 16 songs an hour and 14 minute runtime. But over time, it grew on those critics who learned to appreciate it. But I think that a big part of that was the world growing up around the album. As I've said plenty of times, the 60s were fucked up in America. And while yeah. I think Jimmy... <laughs> this is not too it's gotten, it's gotten better yeah. since. So. Uh, 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 well. And... Well. Uh, just let that... Um. We're going to take a beat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and while I think that uh -huh. Jimmy had a pretty firm grasp on the climate and was able to convey it in the album, it took a while for the wider critical audience to catch on to it. Or, at the very least, the album may have taken on a life of its own as it grew up in this climate. All right, so I have a quick Leon rundown because I know <laughs> this is the perfect wondering. place for it. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, you'd be right. I'm glad here. you did. I'm yeah. glad you didn't tell us when this, we were talking about yeah, about is, Leon when important. they were together. Yeah. 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 So for <laughs> yeah. the last month, uh, Jimmy flew him out to Los Angeles, and he's just been hanging out in Los Angeles in a in a home that Jimmy rents. Yeah. Without Jimmy Wait, there, is most this of the before, time. 
Is this before or after he was in the military and went AWOL? Just this is this is this is before that. Yeah, actually, okay, okay. I was oh gonna try to plug that at the end of this, but I wasn't sure <laughs> oh, if that was gonna oh, yeah. fit. Yeah, so actually, at the very end of this, he's gonna get he's gonna go home, leaving Jimmy's place, and then just get his dad is gonna take him to the to the recruiter, and he's gonna get shipped out. Yeah, he's get, okay. he get, he gets drafted to Vietnam. So yeah, yeah. yeah. they're just fucking yeah. in their twenties. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah. he's they're adults. Yep, yep, he's in his twenties and he gets drafted. So. Uh, Alizy, that's all I got, man. That's Leon. Good. Thanks, Leon. Free- freeloading off his brother. <laughs> Thanks for the update, Ethan. Appreciate it, big guy. You're welcome. Good to know. <laughs> you want to know. <laughs> I knew someone wanted. Anyway, back to my critical musical analysis <laughs> over the the culture around Jimi Hendrix album. I think the 60s and stuff. Cultured show here. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. A perfect example of what I was speaking of, of the of the world growing up around Jimmy's album or Jimmy's album growing up around the world was the cover of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Mm. When Bob Dylan wrote it, it was a typical folk song with a vague, possibly biblical meaning. But when Jimmy covered it, speeding it up and amplifying it both literally and metaphorically, it gave the song an entirely new meaning. Insane. <laughs> with it becoming one of the largest war protest songs in the Vietnam era. It is nuts how totally different of a meaning he gave it all on his yeah. own and then it just becomes the vietnam protest song that gets put in every single <laughs> vietnam movie you know I'm, I'm i'm more partial to to fortunate son by yeah. that one too that's we the, all have our opinions I think that's somewhere. the only yep. one that somehow is bigger yep yeah uh, <laughs> it is yeah and i did i i was looking it up and i'm pretty sure jimmy started recording this cover Almost immediately after the Bob Dylan version came out, because the Bob Dylan version came out in very early 1968, and then <laughs> Jimmy heard it. He is bold it. with those covers. Well, he goes for it. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't even know what Bob sounds like. Yeah, no, it it, it sounds like a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, not yeah. good. Yeah, said the joker to the thief. <laughs> Two writers. It's too much confusion. <laughs> I can't get no relief. Yeah. No, you've heard it. You got it. I got it. I got it. You can fill it in. Uh, people both overseas as well as stateside could feel like that joker or that thief with a real tangible confrontation in the distance. To broaden this back out, as the world changed, critics may have found that Electric Ladyland was a more eloquent soundtrack to it than they originally thought. But all of this is just me speculating. Yeah, I will. Oh, uh, good speculation. And to keep it trashy, the UK <laughs> release of the album had an uh, album artwork of 21 naked chicks on the cover, yeah, which brought in Hot. a whole slew of scandal. And the brown bagging of the album, which is a act when retailers would put the album in a brown bag, mm-hmm. which I assumed was like a predate to the parental warning the parental advisory warning <laughs> where the brown bag just told kids which albums were the best so like what you do with your booze yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> well no no much different <laughs> it's it's very different actually <laughs> this is like the parental warning you yeah. know we talked about it before you know what's what's the best album to get because your parents don't want you to get it Bingo. those are the ones you go straight to yeah so it's a big bonus for the younger crowd but i think it actually had a lot to do with why it only reached number six in the UK, because um, it, like he was obviously more popular in the UK, but a lot of shops were straight up refusing to carry it at all. Yeah, and so it was harder to find. Mm-hmm. But that sucks because Jimmy didn't want that. He had like a whole elaborate design sketched out. Yeah, that he wanted to do like with all the women surrounding him, no nudity, like he was supposed to be a god. And it, it was super elaborate and he got really nervous. And before the shoot, he just didn't show up. Yeah. And day of, 
you leave the creepy execs and the camera guys in charge, they're going to offer to pay more for nudity. <laughs> well, they don't even they don't even pay more. They paid five pounds to each woman if they would take off their top. If you didn't take off your top, you weren't in the photo, obviously. But then they paid another five pounds if you took off your uh, if you took off your underwear too. You got fully nude. So what are the odds we can get these women to have sex with us? <laughs> How many more pounds? Oh man, a quick ten pounds if you if you do all the all the if if you go all the way. That's incredible. <laughs> He was not happy about it, though. Yeah. It was not what he wanted. Not not in the least, yeah. But wouldn't you know it, it's what got put out. And Sad. we're talking about it now, so I guess yep. it, it yeah, I guess it worked, you know? Yep. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> you got it, Mick. So regardless, <laughs> this was one of the two albums that Jimmy put out that reached number one on the charts. And incredibly, this was the last album put out by Jimi Hendrix. Well, the last studio album anyway. Mm. And while I could tell you that clearly Jimi Hendrix was changing based on the fact that his live shows were changing with him only playing one show in all of December 1968 or that his pastime was becoming jamming with musicians around New York City at the scene or the experience or that Jimmy himself even making a public announcement on November 9th stating that the Jimi Hendrix experience was breaking up in the new year to pursue other projects. But I think... To perfectly encapsulate the future of where Jimmy's going, I think he said it best when he spoke a single line at a jam session at TTG Studios in L.A. before going into a redone version of Red House, which sums it up best for what Jimi Hendrix was going to look like in 19. 69. Yeah, by this time, we'll have to present you to the electric church. That's right. Next episode, we are taking you guys to church. <laughs> okay. Okay, I guess I'm going to go. Uh, yeah. Put your hands up, oh, man. close yeah. those eyes, and get that penis out, because we are going to the electric church, the sky church, because what things if, are changing. What if the other side of the audience doesn't have a penis? What do they do? Get your tits out. Okay. Get your, take off, get your shirt off. <laughs> take yeah, off your shirt tits. out. Take your tits off. All right. Get <laughs> Jimmy's going off. Jimmy's getting full. Jimmy's getting full into the. I think we should see other people. He's going. He's going straight into. It's not you. It's me. It's 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 me. It's just me. Where the Jimi Hendrix experience will end, the Electric Church will begin. And what a juicy end! You got to come back in two weeks to get the rest of the story. Well, more of the story, not the rest, but yeah. there'll be a little more to go. <laughs> yeah, <there's laughs> Strap in. So far, we're on track um, for three more episodes. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I might push it to four just to, so, just to so hit double So what you can say digits. is we're going to do, we're on episode six right now, and mm-hmm. we're going to end on nine, so six, yeah. nine. If, yes, yeah. if six was nine. Sixty-nine, yeah. Just wanted to get that out there. Sixty-nine. Yep. Oh, yeah. Nice. Thanks, Ethan. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we don't need to give you the rundown we always give you. On and five for pretty much every social media yeah, except yeah. Uh, the website on and five pod.com. Yep. Um, podcast. Patreon. Yeah, you know, yeah on and five podcast.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put the cast at the end. Please do. If you're not more confused, <laughs> let, let me let me help try to keep explaining it to yeah. you. Please. Just turn it off. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great night. Yeah. And come uh, on back. And, uh, Thank you so uh, much. I wanted to bring back a bit. Uh, I'm drinking Coors oh, Light tonight. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I don't remember the bit. The bit is we, we used we to talk say about what we drink every, at yeah. the end. Remember, oh, Austin? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Come on, man. Well. <laughs> <laughs>